0: Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. I spread my arms in answer to its spread wings, as if I was going to embrace it. I spoke out loud. Welcome, welcome, welcome was what I meant to say. But the wind took my breath from me and all i could manage was come 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 hello everyone and welcome back to reading with joy our summer book club where we are discussing the strange and wonderful book *Pyrenees*. i am absolutely delighted to welcome on the show today to discuss this second chapter which is quite long they're kind of disproportionate not disproportionate but they have different different lengths um we'll be talking about the second part the other today and I'm welcoming a wonderful guest, Malcolm Gite. It's lovely to have you on. Oh, well,
1: thank you. Lovely to be with you, Joyce. Nice to
0: mm-hmm.
1: passing through Cambridge, and I can um, connect up with you. So
0: I know. It's very fun. We're sitting here with our cups of tea, and it just feels like wonderful freedom after a year of not being able to see people sit
1: with a good. cup of tea
0: yeah. and discuss a very good book. Yeah. For others who may not know, um, for whom the name Malcolm Gite does not bring up any ideas, I am very delighted to introduce you. Because Malcolm is a poet, a priest, a scholar, a rocker, and a rider of motorbikes.
1: Mm, he just is, came on the bike to you today.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I
1: um, field, yeah.
0: Yes, I know. I, I, your, your arrival was announced to me by the, <laughs> by the so, hum of your yeah. engine. Malcolm has written many books of poetry, and I've actually spoken about several of them on the podcast before. Right. So we've done a episode on the Singing Bowl, which is. You know, it's odd how some poems just stick with you and become important to you. Mm. But that one has been one that I've cherished and kind of have in my brain that returns to me from time to time. And we've also worked on, you have several beautiful volumes to help people kind of prepare for seasons in the church. Yeah, here. yeah,
1: there's, there's a sort of Lent one. Um, yes, the you know, Advent one. The Wilderness. Waiting on the Word is the Advent one. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Where I'm really, as much as anything, just saying, I'm taking poems I love and saying, look at this, yeah. enjoy this, yeah, how about this? Yeah. Which is really the heart of my podcast.
0: Yeah. I just thought that people, I think my family was getting tired of me saying, have you read this? Yeah. And so I thought I'd start a podcast yeah. where I could do it to other people. Yeah, that's
1: a very good <laughs> idea.
0: Well, is there anything else, any other sketch of your own personality you would like to give people before <laughs> we dive into today?
1: Well, i um, uh, like you, I I'm a reader, and I I can fairly say that I read with joy. I do enjoy, <laughs> and I think you become a writer because you're a reader. I mm-hmm. think you can't be a poet unless you you've loved poetry itself, mm-hmm. and when it's not only entertained and drawn in and nurtured by good writing, certainly good writing like likes Susanna Clarke, but it also is generous and generative. I think mm-hmm. you know one.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm very conscious of the. The books that I know Susanna has delighted in which themselves have been a seedbed for this mm. book and this book I've no doubt will have its own progeny and within that yeah. you know energy in a you know, few years readers will find that they've been stimulated by this mm. book to writing something more and something new.
0: Yeah I think that's beautiful and I think that's when I, when I think about my podcast that's what I hope to do is to invite people into this rich conversation that has been happening over... Thousands of years of people um, yeah. trying to get at the world with poetry and with beauty and with imagination. Yeah. And this is a book that's particularly rich in resonances. Oh,
1: absolutely. It's very much a book that's in conversation. I mean, the passage, the chapter we're looking at, the Albatross passage, obviously, it's in a wonderful conversation with, mm-hmm. um, with Coleridge's poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner there uh i mean it happen to be, have a special resonance for me because i myself have been before this book was written in conversation with Susanna yes. about yes. coleridge and, well, the it, and many us, other things you well know, tell us a uh, bit
0: about that tell us how you so so yeah. i mean i've been
1: uh, it's been a real a blessing and honor to have been her friend for many years now but i used to be a, one of the priests um a church in cambridge called st edward king and martyr and um I did, in addition to the services, I used to do sort of evening lectures Mm. on the imagination as a truth-bearing faculty on various poets, and um, we were very much a church that was very friendly to inquiries and friendly to... We took almost as a watchword, you know, a thing in Shakespeare about, you know, imagination apprehends more than Mm. cool reason ever comprehends, and we Mm. were more at the imaginative apprehension than the sort of doctrinal definition end Mm. of of the Christian spectrum anyway she just began to show up at the back of the church she was living partly in Cambridge and, and um, I got to know her and we co-taught a little thing in the church together um, called Tales of Mystery and Imagination mm-hmm. and we in fact I, I I prepared her for confirmation and, and mm-hmm. so I got to know her well. but eventually we began to exchange um, kind of manuscripts as it were and just co courage- along the true of she, was, she was really incredibly kind to me in that while I was working on this big book on Coleridge she began to read it in manuscript mm-hmm. and encouraged me with it and so we went through the whole exploration mm-hmm. of it but the other thing that had connected us was that I. one of the first things she came to at St Edwards was a course I did which I created just to do for fun called The Inklings Fantasists or Prophets and I lectured on Lewis Tolkien, Charles Williams but also on Owen Barfield who was mm-hmm. very much the neglected inkling and she told me later that uh, some of the things I'd, ideas of Barfield which mm-hmm. in, I think Barfield even college, idea of the thing that we called um, original participation, this mm-hmm. idea that perhaps we now have a more detached, split, fragmented mm-hmm instrumental view of nature. Nature's this Mm -hmm. bunch of stuff out there we manipulate and wear Mm -hmm. this little island of consciousness, but who knows where that came from and what it relates to. That Mm -hmm. way, which we just take to be the status quo, Mm -hmm. is a comparatively recent development Mm -hmm. and is a change and perhaps even a diminishment or shriveling of consciousness in comparison with an earlier consciousness. Mm -hmm. And his evidence for that, interestingly, is to do with the idea of, he takes certain words that We've split up into different meanings, mm-hmm. but which originally meant the same thing. One of them, of course, is the great uh, biblical word, "nūma,"
0: mm. which
1: means spirit and breath and wind. Yeah, but it, and we've said, well, that must be two things there must be an inward spiritual phenomena and an outward meteorological phenomena. Yeah, or we take the word spiritus, the Latin word, and we say, well, this is respiration mm. and that is inspiration, mm. as though the, the two we split up. Yeah, so Bar- Barfield believed there was this original participation and believed in the end we might be able to return mm. to what he called final participation. Mm-hmm. He thought it was not entirely bad that we'd, we'd moved away from this communal, participative thing because he thought we needed to become individuals and mm. but then we had to go back to this deeper communion mm-hmm. and for Barfield this was very much involved with the theology of the Holy Spirit and mm. some sort of sense of mm-hmm. incarnation. Anyway so I just talked about that stuff you mm. know thinking uh, it was interesting and it was only uh, sometime later that uh, Susanna revealed to me that in fact that was the, had been part yes. of thinking through how she would describe her character Piranesi and his yeah. relations.
0: Perhaps. And of course, the joy of Piranesi's perspective its just this innocent loveliness, this encounter yeah. with the world where he just assumes that connection between what is what we might call internally spiritual and externally yeah. there. There's no divide between that. And this chapter is particularly poignant for that because, of course, it is the other. Yeah. And it's the first time in the book that we're really encountering the perspective of, according to Piranesi, the one other living human being yeah. who very obviously doesn't encounter the world yeah. in the same way. No, and it clearly,
1: in a sense, in Barfieldian terms, represents the most detached bit mm. of modern man's, mm. you know, essentially exploitative and manipulative yes.
0: approach to nature. It reminds me of, there's a little section, I think, I think it's actually not Charles Taylor, I think it's James K. Smith summarising Charles Taylor, but where he talks about kind of like the, you know, the shift from, I think he says, from a hierarchical shepherded place to an empty scientific space. There's this kind of, the shift in, you know, it's still the same world. Piranesi and the other are looking at the same space, but they encounter in this entirely different way that's discontinent. And both of them have this kind of element of alienation, because I think with Piranesi we have the sense that his world is beautiful, but he's also, he is sort of lonely. There's this desire... Yeah, and so I'm there's a, there's like a mute, yeah. there's an alienation of the other from the house. You know, mm. he keeps on calling it the rooms instead of the halls. He doesn't care about the life that's pulsing in it. But Piranesi, we also see kind of a an aching for communion and for which it sounds a little bit like is resonant in the Barfield idea yeah. that there is this need to move outward into individuation and communion. Yeah, that's
1: the process is precisely you have individuation and then you can have communion. Yeah. You can come back into relationship. Yeah. And of course, you know, I don't want to do any plot spoilers, but in the long arc of the book
0: yeah.
1: at least the book let's say let's put it this way a bit more. one of the f- ideas the book explores is supposing a person were suddenly having lived previously in our detached
0: yeah.
1: um if you like alienated yeah. individuated world. Supposing that person were to be plunged back into a world in which they were able to have that Ridiculous. intuitive original person. and then they were to return, yeah. could they carry any of it with them? Mm. What would it mean? How would it affect the way they saw and, the familiar world now?
0: And I think that's why this book is so important and why it impacted me so much is that you hear a lot of people who are interested in imagination and arts and beauty they use the word enchantment a lot right Yeah. and this kind of need to re-enchant the world but of yeah. course the whole thing with Piranesi he doesn't think he's re-enchanting the world he's yeah. just encountering it and the yeah. whole point of the you say final participation yeah. is yeah. that it's not something that I'm consciously doing because in a way if you think of re-enchantment as just like I'm going to project nice things back into the world you're really still in oh, no, no, yeah, exactly
1: yeah, No, it's much more I mean I just finished writing a book I just signed it off for a thing in a press in America called Square Hair. Mm-hmm. and um my book is called lifting the veil
0: Mm.
1: and the point about that metaphor i mean it's a scriptural metaphor i will take off the veil from the nations the heavy black folds over the world Mm. and you know there are various other ways in which it's used by the writers i want Mm. to write about including william blake but um that's not about me taking a dull world and re-enchanting it with some enchanting magical poetry yeah it's much more that I and my ilk have cast over the world temporarily
0: yeah.
1: a false covering yes. of ordinariness,
0: yes.
1: which Coleridge called the film of familiarity and, yeah. love and selfish solicitude, and that we have to remove that film yeah. and that awaken the mind's attention. Yes. But that's about lifting a veil to reveal a radiant glory. But the radiant glory is there right now. It, yes. You know, nobody is going to reenchant the world except yeah. the God who made it, and he's yeah. already done so. Yes. So, what you're waiting for is this moment of revelation, which is there, you know, to borrow a biblical thing again in Romans 8 about, you know, yeah. the whole creation waits with the eager longing, yeah. not for the, for some clever human beings to do a bit of re enchantment, but, <laughs> yeah. but for the revealing of the children of God. Of what God, is already there. You know. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think that's very obvious in the other, in this chapter, again, right, because he has this mysterious knowledge that he's trying to reclaim. Yeah. But he does it in this very. In this way, that offends Parmenides. He feels that we should abandon the pursuit of the knowledge because the house has told him this is bad. Yeah. Because it is that desire to still instrumentalize, and it's it's like a it's like a naive nostalgia um, yeah. that undercuts itself because yeah. what we want is to be able to see what is truly there, yeah. not to somehow control. Unworthy. Well, it's
1: knowledge as power, isn't it, rather than knowledge as relationship? And there's yes. certainly only kind, certain kinds of knowledge are only available. In. But uh, oh, shall we get to the albatross? A, shall we get yeah. to the albatross? I, I think just we think I've been working for some years on this book on Coleridge and uh, my book was called Mariner, um A Voyager Seven to mm-hmm. Coleridge, and the way it takes the form of taking the story of the Rhine of the Ancient Mariner and saying, mm-hmm. Look, that was prophetic in mm-hmm. a double way. It was prophetic. What actually happened to Coleridge? The mm-hmm. Coleridge had made a disastrous choice, fell into this enemy, yeah. was full of lethargy, wanted to die, and then eventually recovered, just exactly like the mariner. Mm. All, that, all that happened after he'd written the poem. Mm. But the other side of this was to say that it's prophetic of our culture
0: mm.
1: that we are now at the stage where we shot the albatross and was sort of between mm. the seventeenth and the eighteenth centuries, yeah. and now we're just stuck on a bizarre, random ship in the ocean of. The cosmos, full yeah. of dead stuff, yeah. for no particular reason,
0: and yeah. not even
1: knowing where we're going. Yeah. But what happens, of course, is there's a moonrise, and then you know, mm-hmm. gradually, and I think we have just passed the worst bit, and mm-hmm. we're just beginning to get to the point where it's the Mariner can recover the joyful mode of knowing yeah. which she had first greeted the albatross. Anyway, so I put all this in this book, and the whole point about the albatross—we hail it in God's name and the constant relationship between the Albatross and the cross Mm. in Coleridge. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can imagine when suddenly I came to this passage.
0: Wait, I'm going to pause you momentarily. For anyone who hasn't read The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, could you give them a very, I think you kind of just did, but a very brief overview. Um, Yeah, sure. I mean, it doesn't count, because you have to go read it. Yeah, yeah, no, Also, one of my first conversations with you was at the C.S. Lewis Conference, and I, in my very earnest 19-year-old self Mm. said, Malcolm, what poetry should I memorise? And you said, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Oh, did I? <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Yeah, starting with something short, eh? <laughs> So, yeah, very quickly, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner was a poem written by Coleridge in the 1790s, although it's written as a ballad, so it's in a form that
0: mm-hmm.
1: imagines itself to be much older than okay. that. And it's essentially the story of a mariner who sets out on a voyage, we're not told why he's going, it, and they cross the equator and they sail down into the South, South Atlantic, and they get surrounded by ice, and they're mm. in great peril. And suddenly, at last, they see a living thing, and it's a very, very beautiful albatross that flies towards them. Mm. They hail it in God's name. It shares their food. Mm. It always appears in the moonlight, It, it, mm. it, it and it finally guides them. Mm out of the ice impasse, mm. and they're f- set free. And then the expression of the mariner who's telling the story suddenly changes to one of horror, and the guest who's listening says, why looks thou so? And he says, well, was, I says, God save the ancient mariner from fiends that played thee thus. Why, well, looks thou so? Mm. With my crossbow, I shot the albatross. And this mm. random act of, as it were, motiveless malignity, this sheer assertion mm. of power, unleashes a series of events. Mm. turns out the albatross is linked spiritually and um, in lots of other ways with a deep polar spirit, a spirit that moves mm. beneath the keel. The heights and the depths are linked. Mm. And um, essentially the mariner becomes a survivor. Everybody else on the boat dies. He has a vision of death and then something far worse, which is life and death, mm. which is living as if he were dead, living amongst the dead, mm. the joy of life gone and that's what he endures until there is a moment of redemption when having cursed himself and cursed everything there's a moonrise and he looks out and sees suddenly sees the intrinsic beauty and goodness of all the life around him what he'd seen when they first hailed the albatross and what he does is he blesses the creatures he says Mm my kind saint he says, blessing, he says, welcome. He he, mm. And at that point, he's released from his guilt and he's mm. able to pray. And eventually, he returns to his own land with a story to tell and a transformed way of seeing.
0: Mm.
1: A quick summary. That was beautiful, yes. <laughs>
0: that was beautiful and, and connects very perfectly to the section we shall explore.
1: Yeah, so... Um,
0: shall we read a bit of it?
1: Yeah, let's just... Maybe we could just hear the moment when he sees it. It's very interesting. She starts it with this, I saw a vision, exclamation mark. That kind of underlines that this is both itself and more than itself. Yes. But in a way for Piranesi, everything in the house is more than itself. Everything yes. is fraught with meaning. Yeah. But this very especially so. It's just so beautiful. I saw a vision. In the dim air above the gray waves hung a white shining cross. Mm. Its whiteness was a blazing whiteness. It far outshone the wall of statues behind it. It was beautiful, but I did not understand it. Mm. The next moment brought enlightenment of a sword. It was not a cross at all, but something vast and white, which glided rapidly towards me on the wind. What could it be? It must be a bird, but if I could see it at such a great distance, then it must be a bird of much greater size than the birds I was accustomed to. It swept on, coming directly towards me. I spread my arms in answer to its spread wings, as if I was going to embrace it. I spoke out loud, welcome, 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 was what I think I meant to say. But the wind took my breath from me and all I could manage was, come, come, come. The bird sailed across the heaving waves, never once beating its wings. With great skill and ease, it tipped itself slightly sideways to pass through the doorway that separated us. Its wingspan surpassed even the width of the door. I knew what it was, an albatross. And uh, then there's a moment when the albatross comes straight towards him and he says, the moment that he reached me, the moment that I thought we would collide like planets and become one, I gave out a sort of gasping cry. Ah! In the same instant, I felt some sort of pent-up tension go out of me, a tension I did not know I had until that moment. Vast white wings passed over me. I felt and smelt the air those wings brought with them. The sharp, salty, wild tang of faraway tides and winds that had roamed vast distances through halls I would never see. Oh, <sighs> it like so, what a piece of writing. It's so good. <laughs>
0: oh, it really
1: um, is. It's really interesting, the bit, I mean, you read it, he understood, the albatross is a kind of angel. I mean, mm. in the deepest sense of the word angel, messenger, you know, mm. he... Peronese for a moment imagines himself to become an angel Mm. with a message of joy and you feel to the other to the other to the other and of course later we have the sense of the irony of that Mm. and yet there would be glad tidings of joy to the other if the Mm. other was capable had made himself capable of hearing them. of course the other thing which that put me in mind of this Mm. sudden moment of is I mean we're talking about literature as a long conversation which Mm. it is and you know, the best response to work of creation is another work, creative work mm-hmm. and uh not only is this book in conversation with our around the ancient man and Bar of our field it's in conversation with the other uh books that say coleridge is inspired and um I mean, barfield wrote what coleridge thought but uh I've always maintained that The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the book in which mm. Lewis pays his tribute to Coleridge and specifically to the Rime of the Ancient Mariner. Mm. Because as you remember, one of the most famous lines in the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner when they're in doldrums is as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Mm. And of course, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader starts with a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Yes. And then comes this, you know, this island of darkness. And there's a very. So uh, just to put a bit of frame, I'm sure you and your friends reading this already have seen this, that. There's already a lot of Lewis. nods to Lewis, mainly to the magician's nephew mm-hmm. and the name Ketterly and the, some of the big themes of the magician's nephew, mm-hmm. including, of course, they find when they're in the other world, you know, jadis's world, it's all statues. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, and the question of magic as a thing in between on the one, something which might lead to a response of domination and power, Mm. or of awe and worship. Mm. And um, a true or pure or good magic always, as it were, shines a light into the soul of its beholder. Mm. And you see whether they're going to respond with worship or the
0: desire for power.
1: Mm. Of course, that's very clear in in, um, The Magician's Nephew. But I I think the other book that is maybe, at least in this episode, Mm in conversation here. If you remember that thing where he first sees the the, the distant light, then he sees the cross, mm-hmm. and then he realizes it's, kind of it's, it's an albatross. Is it a
0: plane? Is it Superman? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so Lucy looked along the beam and presently saw something in it. At first it looked like a cross, and then it looked like an aeroplane, then it looked like a kite. At last, with a whirring of wings, it was right overhead, it was an albatross. Mm-hmm. It circled three times around the mast and then perched for an instant on the crest of the gilded dragon at the prow. It called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, though no one understood them. After that, it spread its wings, rose, and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to starboard. Junian steered after it. Of course, that's exactly what the albatross does for the mariners; the they, they follow it. Um, not after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance. But no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. Mm. And the voice, she felt sure, was Aslan's. And with the voice, a delicious smell breathed into her face. Of course, delicious Mm. smell, you remember the scent of the faraway Mm. places and the winds Mm. of the tidal halls I've never visited. So they're both numerous Mm. encounters. They're both linked with the cross. And of course, Lewis is offering a profound reading of the Rhine of the Ancient Mariner here. When he has, it's the only, as far as I know, apart from the lamb at the end Mm. of this book, Aslan only ever speaks as a lion. Mm. and those two biblical images lion and the land mm-hmm. with this one noble exception
0: yeah.
1: that he speaks as an albatross mm. and I think Lewis is saying that in the rhyme of the ancient mariner the albatross that was slain was in fact the saviour that's the albatross mm-hmm. has just saved the entire ship
0: mm.
1: and then he's slain mm. and in the end it's dealing with that and returned that the albatross in a sense is then the good spirit that guides him mm-hmm. even though he's you know and uh, there's a bit in the in the rhyme of the ancient mariner where the the mariner hears these two spirits these two angelic spirits discussing him mm-hmm. discussing his moral s- state mm-hmm. and the depth of the sin that he's fallen into and there's a reference to the, how the spirit the spirit mm-hmm. beneath the keel he loved the bird that loved the man mm. that shot him with his bow. Mm. So that's the first time, only at the very end, that we realise that the albatross loved the mariner. Mm. So the, and yet the mariners lose the albatross. So the kind of Christ-likeness of that is very mm. powerful. Um, anyway, I, I just thought, I, it was, I was just a thrill, you know, well, to read Susanna yeah. Clark's.
0: Yeah, to go... And something else is that passage starts with Lucy looked along the beam, oh, yes, was, which is, of course, a very important. Yeah, it's a thing. very,
1: yeah, you know, Lewis has a famous essay called Meditation in a Toolshed. Mm-hmm. Must say he did come up with some cracking titles for He ourselves. really did. Plus yeah. <laughs> spells and flannel, flannel and spheres. Anyway, um, Meditation <laughs> and Toolshed, which he, he talks about the difference between contemplation and enjoyment. He talks about different ways of knowing. The way mm-hmm. of knowing where you look at a thing, mm-hmm. you're detached from it. Yeah. You're in the dark toolshed. You see the beam of light.
0: You can say things about it. You can
1: say things about it. But it's only when you look along the beam that you discover it's coming from another source and that beyond the tool shadow, are mm-hmm. green trees and leaves yeah. and you, you see. So Lucy's whole mode of knowing is looking along the beam, yeah. you know, is a, is a sign. And again, of course, Barfield, who mm-hmm. is the great interpreter of Coleridge, is a huge and important friend of Lewis's, who was yeah. the person who really persuaded Lewis that his imagination might be a truth-bearing faculty.
0: Mm.
1: So, you know, yeah. Susanna Clark did... Very well, in a sense. Not only is she drawing on Lewis and Coleridge, but she's also drawing on these Barfieldian interpretations mm-hmm. of that. But I say drawing on them. I mean, she's created an entirely new. I mean, a brilliant. This is it's a brilliant book. It really is. Uh, it, it, it's got that characteristic, to my mind, of a classic work, which is that until you read it, you could never have imagined it existing. No. But as soon as you have read it, you, you could can. never imagine it not existing. Mm-hmm. It has a place in your yeah. field immediately. And that book has exactly that assurance that you
0: Yeah, and I think the thing that I find so important about it too is that it's dealing with ideas, right? Yeah. And it's wrestling with these things we think about and are concerned about. But it, it's doing it through the beam, right? You know, yeah. it's it's not something that you just go. That was a very clever point about, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. role of language. You come out of it transformed. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely no, it's doing yeah. its deepest work at the imaginative level. I mean f- I mean the other book I wonder if it's I haven't had a chance to talk to Susanna herself about this only adventure in my mind, but I'm rereading Fantastis at the moment, mm. George MacDonald's book and of course that has a whole thing about a hall after hall full of statues and mm. the statues suddenly jumping back on their plinths again mm. and the whole question of your relationship. I'm not saying she's doing the same thing, but yes. I think Macdonald's imagination is so fecund and so mm-hmm. full of resonant and numinous images that they naturally play into the... Yeah. I mean, there's a bit in that but I mean, it's certainly that book has to mm-hmm. do with the Lion of the Witch. The Macdonald Fantastics has mm-hmm. lots to do with the Lion of the Witch and the wardrobe and the whole business for all the statues and Aslan breathing on the statues and the, um, they're gradually coming to life. Mm-hmm. But this whole... And, of course, there's a passage in it. I don't know if... Susanna was worried that she might well have done because I would probably have quoted it at some point there's an essay of Barfield somewhere where he he's trying to describe how deadly the and false the alienated consciousness Mm -hmm. that we're in at the moment is Mm -hmm. and he compares it to the look of the Gorgon he says maybe what would the world look like if you were the Gorgon Mm -hmm. you would live in a world of frozen statues because Mm -hmm. every time you looked at something it would Huh. Would, wow yeah a minute ago it was alive and dancing but not till you looked at it the very huh. way you looked at it petrified it
0: mm. the gorgon of course being the thing that makes things yeah, turn to stone turn to stone yeah, yeah.
1: yeah so he's saying that this cold calculating objectifying yeah. merely materialistic way of looking at things can reduce and it's reductivism it's called yeah. and he says supposing in fact the world is full of living dancing moving exchanges of joyful meaning and yeah. And, but oh, people are looking freeze, you know, <laughs> and now, <laughs> it's like Toy
0: Story, yeah. <laughs> All the toys stop playing,
1: so anyway. Um, but more well, maybe you know, we make it do that, we turn we, we denature nature at the moment. We look at it, so we have to learn how not to do yeah. that, yeah. Um,
0: so that's, I think that would be a an interesting kind of question to end on. I remember I had a very dear friend who. I would have all these, you know, profound conversations with as a Christian, and he was an atheist, but I remember he once said to me, the way you see the world is much more beautiful and much more sensible to me, but I just can't be sure... That it's that the it's, case. That it's the case. Yeah, and that's perfectly respectable thinking. Yeah, to no, say. I, I know. I'm, There's no
1: point in going on for something because you'd like it to be true. Exactly. You've got to be persuaded that it is the case, or you can at least be persuaded that it would not be foolish to suppose it was the case. Yes. That it's a case that makes as much sense as any other.
0: Well, and case my on offer. and my argument was more that if it is also a sense-making, you know, it's not just something that makes sense; it's also something that makes sense of the world. Yeah, yeah. And so, if the thing that makes the most sense of the world to me. It's, it's more likely to be true. It's more likely to be true. And Brainy's like, well, maybe it's just a, um, you know, a, uh, a huge kind of... Um, our, our evolutionary brains have just manifested this as a way to make sense of the world. And of course,
1: yeah.
0: that could always possibly be yeah. the case. You know, Piranesi could just look at the world and see these things into the world. Yeah. But what do you say to people who feel, or what do you think this book would have to say to people who feel that they're trapped outside the beam, that they would like to see the world? in a way, but they're afraid
1: they might be taken in. Yeah. Well, I think for a start, um, reading books like Piranesi is always a good thing to do. It's a yes. supposable, it's an imaginable. Yes. We have what Coleridge beautifully called a willing suspension of a disbelief. disbelief. Mm-hmm. So
0: which, of course, is where that phrase which, comes which from. Which
1: constitutes poetic faith, he says. Yes. And he says that I might I'm, that I might procure for that willing suspension of death, disbelief, which constitutes poetic faith, so I could procure for these shadows of imagination, that Mm -hmm. semblance of truth from our inward being, Mm -hmm. you know, so we all agree to enter a beautiful fictional world here, and the more we do that, the more, if it's a great work like this, Mm -hmm. we're actually blessed by it, Mm -hmm. we, you, while you're reading the book, you are seeing along the beam, you're not outside the beam, Mm -hmm. and I think it's more than enough for quite a long time, until one gets one's other philosophical
0: ducks in (laughs) a
1: Just to go into the, well, and that's exactly what happened to C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, first, if you like, in that sense, saw along the beam when he read George MacDonald's book, *Fantasies*, which mm-hmm. also, I think, nurtures this and yeah. another book. And he says he felt like he'd crossed a, a boundary from one world mm-hmm. to another, or that in some sense his imagination had baptized, that there was a kind of death and resurrection mm-hmm. in it, that he died in one world and raised in another, which is also a theme in this book mm-hmm. as it happens. So I think if one, if I were an atheist or agnostic, which I was, for quite a long time, discontent with the
0: way of seeing the, world. the, of
1: seeing the world that I've inherited of scientific reductionism, but sceptical about jumping on the bandwagon of mm-hmm. some ludicrous set of superstitions mm-hmm. that we just happen to have inherited, you know, whatever, you know, then I would probably read all those writers and look at all those works and listen to all that music that had the effect of transfiguring the world before me. Mm-hmm. And I would do that for as long as necessary. But at some point, I would have to ask the question, how do they do that? Mm. Why does the world make more sense like this? Mm. Do these writers and composers have anything in common? Mm. Now, when C.S. Lewis asked that question, <laughs> he went, oh, whoops, they're Christian. They're all good, apart from their Christianity. Oh, but that's the thing that binds <laughs> <laughs> out, know. So, yeah, at the very least, one might discover that a transfigured imagination suggests a transcendent source hmm. and that that takes you out of the realm of a kind of one level electrochemical explanation of ecstasy
0: mm-hmm. and something
1: else a little bit hmm. more final and resonant yeah
0: uh, yeah and I think that that is the gift that Susanna gives us in this book is an imaginative supposal, a way to live inside. We don't have to commit to it. We can live inside of it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we know, and we, we, she and we are all agreed that it's a fiction, but it's a fiction we've agreed... Yes. ...to suspend our disbelief in. Yes. And the result is that, I mean, I'm just on a second read of this book now. And oh my goodness, it's got so much more to give you a second time round. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. I can see this is going to be one of those books that you keep going back to and finding more and more
0: in. It reminds me of, in um, Experimenting Criticism, Lewis basically describes a good book as one which invites multiple readings. Yeah, yeah. And this is a good book in that yeah. way. I've wanted to come back. Especially the last chapter after I read it uh, the first time. I just went back and reread it five times because yeah. I felt that I needed to. Yeah. You know, I felt that it was something rich and deep and good. Mm. Well, this has been so wonderful. Now, before before we take off, you have a new book coming out.
1: I mentioned this book called Lifting the Veil. Two three years ago, it was back in 2019, I was invited to give what's called the Lang Lectures mm-hmm. at Regent College and um, it's a set of three lectures and I, I gave it under the title Imagining the Kingdom and I really wanted to precisely to address this question of what is the relationship, if any, mm-hmm. between these delightful goods this discover and the transfigured vision inside the imaginary world mm-hmm. how that transfigures the world, is there anything in that? Is there mm-hmm. anything reliable in that? Mm-hmm. And Reliable is a good
0: word for that. Yeah. Uh, it's
1: about at least the hope that the imagination might be a bit of us resonating with God, mm. where well, the image of God in us might indeed be imagination, and that God as creator and particularly, So it, uh, it's really ends up with a series of th- th- thinking of God in Christ, so it has Christ in the poetic imagination, Christ and, and the moral imagination, mm. Christ and the prophetic imagination. So as was a set of lectures, fine. But I was then uh, in conversation with this uh, wonderful chap Ned Bustard at Square Halo Books, and... Um, he saw the possibility, really, that these lectures could become a new book. They'd need Mm -hmm. expanding. Addressed to young, you know, rising generation, I believe the word they use in North America is creatives. Uh Uh, I (laughs) think that's an adjective rather than a noun. But I think what it means, of course, is people who are involved in painting, poetry, making, all those kinds of things, that here might be an offer of both a grounding for all that making and a a wake-up call for it and a sense of its purpose and a sense in which what all of that might do is begin to help us recover from our enemy Mm. and move us towards, if you like, a final participation. So it's a kind of um, both a defence of the imagination and a, a sort of really a call to artists and writers and painters particularly those with faith but even those who might feel themselves just on the fringe of it those who feel that there's mm-hmm. there's something Damn. numinous something Damn. transcendent involved in the making of art mm. when you're making art you are not a selfish gene unwinding blindly as a sediments and something a bit more is going on than that mm-hmm. and this is giving you some basis for hoping that that's mm. true and for seeing
0: That sounds like a perfect follow-up to A Pyrenees Summer, especially if we have some listeners (laughs) who are creatives and have this pebble in their shoe. wanting to know more about imagination. This has been so wonderful. Thank you for joining me. It's been wonderful. And and thank you, everyone, for listening. Tune in next week for part three, which I believe is The Prophet. And it will be, well, I won't say who it'll be because it'll be one of two people. So I'll let you know when it comes. But thanks, everyone, for listening.